You're listening to the Santa Monica Mountains, a Baywatch podcast by two super chill Southern California beach bums who always record while wearing our signature red swim trunks. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Hobie Pranica. <laughs> Adam, this is our uh, this is our thank you episode to uh, the listeners of the Greatest Generation who support us on maximum fun thank you to everyone yeah thanks for the support hope you like schlock (laughs) (laughs) well and and i think hopefully you like the kind of tv that they were making in the late 80s and early 90s yeah i sure do one of the reasons we selected this episode and this show to make a bonus episode about is that it has so many people like behind the camera and in front of the camera in common with Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. And also with like, you know, 90210 and other other shows of that ilk. Like when I watch this, sh- this show with my wife, it, it's like every other episode will be like a, hey, that guy's from Star Trek or hey, there's, the- there's Roxanne Dawson. If you were to tell me that there were in 1989 only 150 people in Hollywood. Like, <laughs> I would believe it. I know. And the shows of the it, time bear that out. On a weekly basis, you were either on Star Trek, Seinfeld, or Baywatch if you were a, like, day player actor. What a great triple play <laughs> for an actor. Yeah. All three that's of those. That's the hat trick. Yeah. That's, the, that's, that's like the 1991 hat trick, I think. You put on the loaf, <laughs> you put on the swim trunks. You put on the big puffy coat. <laughs> um, did you watch Baywatch when when you were a youngin? It feels inescapable. Like if you were a child of the '80s, Baywatch would be on. Even though like the first season of Baywatch was in the late '80s, right? Like I feel like yeah. it really 
it really grew into the national consciousness once it it went into syndication in the 90s and that's really yeah. when like that was shot directly into my veins <laughs> as as like a, a preteen like this is yeah. this is the good shit right here totally uh yeah i was reading about it on wikipedia this morning that the the first season of baywatch was an nbc network show and they canceled it after the first season and then it became a syndication first show uh-huh. and in the process of doing that they made it the most popular television show in the world there was a time where weekly viewership of baywatch was over a billion like it doesn't surprise me at all after reacquainting <laughs> myself with the show and even for its its several first season stumbles in this episode like yeah. it is <laughs> utterly joyful as a show like it is it is 40 minutes of feel good programming <laughs> it really is um it's a it's a it's a pr- procedural where everyone's in their swimsuit and uh it's very horny but in a in like a very like tv way of being horny right it's it's zippers horny basically that's <laughs> totally. as horny as it gets <laughs> i feel like it's actually in some ways less horny than early tng like yeah like it doesn't hold a candle to justice for example in terms of like how how much skin tng would show right. when it wanted to show skin yeah it's been it's been very like weirdly nostalgic for us to rewatch, despite the fact that I never watched it as a kid. I wasn't allowed to watch it as a kid. I think. Oh, I. You know, my mom. That doesn't surprise me kind, at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, my mom was the kind of mom that like read an article about The Simpsons being too subversive uh, for American children to safely watch and believed it. Yeah. And it, like, it took like years of lobbying for me to be even allowed to watch The Simpsons. Yeah. And uh, by the same token, I think that Baywatch just just looks like the the promos for Baywatch look like porn. So I think that my mom was just like, no fucking way. <laughs> and that was the last word on that. The thing that made it the most popular show in the world was the very thing that made it unpopular with parents of preteens, I bet. Like, <laughs> exactly. Cuts in both directions. My primary association with this show is when uh, in Spy Game, the... Guys that the the like Hong Kong uh, power company guys are going to get bribed to shut off the power to the prison uh, by the British spy that is friends with uh, with Robert Redford. Uh-huh. And he like in, in uh, as a way of pressing his advantage in the negotiation, he stands in front of the television as they're watching the opening credits for Baywatch. And they're like, OK, OK, we'll accept your lower price. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... That was uh, as much as I knew. You can barter with Baywatch, I think. (laughs) Baywatch is leverage. Yeah, (laughs) it truly is. Um, You made a very strong case to me that this this should be the bonus episode for this year. And I was like, I have to admit, I I was lukewarm on it. I hadn't... I mean, I watched... I've watched Baywatch over the years in the context of, you know, being away from home and it's very much like comfort food TV if you're in a hotel room far away and and it's just always on. It's always on some channel, always comforting, 
uh, and I wasn't sure how well it would fit into what we do. But after watching this episode, Ben, I'm positive that that it fits into a greatest gen, maybe more than Star Trek does. <laughs> I absolutely agree with that, Adam. It's 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 really got like everything we love in a TV show. It's got uh, insane music cue and smash zoom on somebody's face to commercial when a plot twist occurs. Yeah, it's got uh, it's got like A, B, and C plots that. Uh, intertwine and sometimes seem like they have nothing to do with each other and might as well be on different shows. Right, <laughs> right. There are so many, so many things about it that uh, that make it really fun for an episode of the kind of show we do. So uh, I, I guess this is really the pilot episode of Adam and Ben's Baywatch podcast. Yeah, and uh, it wouldn't take much for me to keep doing episodes about <laughs> Baywatch, but let's start with this episode of Baywatch. Ben, it's Baywatch season one, episode, you said five, but I think it's six. The pilot is counted as a TV movie and not a part of the series oh. by by many people. And like they're, like the pilot does feel really distinct. Like they recast a couple of characters that are in the pilot and then are not in the, the first season. Uh, but this is like, this is also that era of TV where like characters are recast uh, with new actors all the time and it's just never explained like, oh, Hobie is three years younger in season two. Weird. All right. Well, the title of the episode is called The Sky is Falling. And I don't know about you, Ben, but I was watching uh, an HD remastered version because uh, like many yes. shows of its era, this was shot in beautiful crisp 35 millimeter film and uh, they were able to take the negatives and remaster it frame by frame giving giving us the uh, the show that we watched today it's very similar treatment to what tng got when they remastered that except for the crucial difference which is that i think they shot baywatch with a wide format television possibility in mind yeah which may be the difference of like 1987 to 1989. Not as surprised as I was. But like, this is a full widescreen show and there's never, you know, there's never equipment on the side of the screen or anything like that. What you get though is a lot like what we experienced in watching TNG, which is like sometimes the focus isn't as crisp as it would be if you were shooting HD for that reason. Right, and that's partly the pace of television production. And I mean, like, this is something that is more a thing now than it uh, than it has been in filmmaking in recent years. But like, if you're shooting in 4K, but finishing to 1080, you sometimes shoot wider than mm -hmm. what you might imagine the, the final shot will be because you can punch in so much in post without losing detail. Uh, that's sort of at play here. This is this is actually one of the episodes with the most footage that they couldn't recover that I've seen so far. Also, there's there's a several points in the episode where it will cut to something that is obviously from a tape, uh, a videotape master, and not a a film archive. Right. Yeah. Very jarring to get to that moment. Maybe maybe the way that the show jars the most to a modern audience is starting right out with its theme song and uh, and opening <laughs> credits. This is a show yeah. 
that seems to be very confident in how iconic its choice of theme song is. Yeah, and that was another thing that surprised me is that the theme song was... This is not the theme song that played on the first season. They they put, like, the, the final form of the theme song back into season one for the remaster. I didn't know that because I, I always associated the I'm Always Here song with Baywatch, even though it did yeah. change over the course of its many seasons. I mean, you can't... It's such an earworm. It's very Miami Vice-ish in its stomp Broadway you know like banging on the top of garbage cans percussion the like super long piano solo in the middle is really a really amazing choice that you know like a really long opening credit sequence is also just something that is such a thing of the past and so like a instrument solo of any kind in a TV theme seems like an antiquated idea. I don't think this show would have been as popular as it was without this theme song and without its credit sequence. It's yeah. it's just great. It totally rules. Yeah. Once we get through the marvelous and iconic theme, uh, we open on um, some some sweeping going on. Captain Thorpe, the Mac Daddy of lifeguards, is uh, is sweeping up one of the towers, and Mitch Buchanan, the David Hasselhoff character, is uh, is taking a run on the beach and runs up to Captain Thorpe and kind of gets <laughs> kind of gets his chops busted about being. Not a great lieutenant because he's allowing his lifeguards to leave messy watchtowers. I love how David Hasselhoff runs on the beach like I run on the beach, constantly aware that they might be stepping on something sharp. He's <laughs> He's got a very light-footed jog in the sand yeah. in a way that seemed very familiar to me. I loved it. His body is also just like totally unbelievable. Like it's... Like he is an extremely tall man. I think he's like significantly taller than either of us. And he, he just has like these beautiful slender legs and then this like pretty built upper body. He's like the front of a centaur. Like you <laughs> you cut the back of a centaur off and that's David Hasselhoff. He's amazing yeah. looking. <laughs> so the Hoff is getting in trouble from the captain for... Uh, for not running as tight a ship as the captain would like when uh, they hear uh, the sounds of a of an airplane in trouble. Could you identify this type of aircraft, Adam? Oh, it looked like just one of the many anonymous Cessna 180 series okay. aircraft. Yeah, like I, I couldn't quite ID it. I'm almost positive the plane changed once it was underwater, though. It looked like it, it switched yeah. to a, a low-wing airplane <laughs> once it was submerged, but they, they don't use that shot more than a second. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's one of the shots that they did not have a film archive of, mm-hmm. apparently, because uh, whenever we cut to plane, it's super low res, and they're doing that like 
that thing that you do when you watch a sporting event, which is even though you know the pilot can't talk to you, they're saying like, come on, man, yeah. pull up, pull up. Most airplane crashes don't occur at the end of like, five minutes of wing waving on its way down. <laughs> it's very dramatic wing wave into the water here. It sure is. I love that, that when you're a lifeguard, the reaction to any emergency is take off your shirt. I can't think of another yes. job where, holy shit, something bad is happening. <laughs> hey, Don, time to take off our shirts. <laughs> and so Captain Thorpe and uh, Mitch Buchanan do, and they start running into the water. Uh, Thorpe brings yeah. his surfboard. Thorpe calls it in and follows Mitch with the surfboard. Mitch, of course, takes the uh, the iconic uh, floaty floaty can. I don't know what that thing is called, but that like bullet shaped warning buoys. An emergency buoy. A warning buoy. That they jump into the water with, and um, and they swim out to this crashed ship and two. Total characters uh, emerge from the water in the uh, in the floating wreckage of the airplane. It's Jeff and Susie Green, basically. <laughs> it really is a pre-curb character sketch. <laughs> uh, the lady's name is uh, Sylvia, and uh, the uh, the dude's name is Harv. Uh, Harv is played by James Sloyan, who. Uh, TNG viewers will recognize as Admiral Jerrock. Yeah. Captain, there is no more time. And uh, and also uh, DS9 viewers will recognize as Dr. Mora. There is so much about you we still don't understand. Yeah, I can't forget Dr. Mora. Can't also forget that uh, Monty Markham plays Captain Thorpe, and he, of course, was the Risa scold in that Deep Space Nine episode who wants to clean oh, up Risa right. by, uh, by moralizing everyone into leaving <laughs> kind of great casting if you were to watch this episode of Baywatch and you're trying to cast that character on Deep Space Nine Captain yeah. Thorpe is kind of a scold in this episode you don't need to audition him yeah. right you have game tape on he, he, <laughs> Monty, Monty Markham, Markham is, is offer only anyway so. yeah. <laughs> uh, we should also shout out the director Kim Manners who directed I think at least one episode of TNG but also did like a bunch of X-Files and other yeah, Kim Manners did uh, did the the dolphin polishing episode of TNG. Yes, <laughs> we can say it later on. But like uh, Hobie's little lady friend on the beach, also in that episode. So we get this rescue, and like Harv and Sylvia are at each other's necks, like from jump. Just me and Sky King over there. They're arguing from the second their heads pop out of the water. Some references made to a briefcase that, uh, if you're not listening carefully, would go right by you. But uh, but they're very they're very angry with each other, and uh, and uh, and that is our introduction to these characters who will become kind of the main characters of the a plot uh, that are guests on the show. This experience has made Captain Thorpe nostalgic for the water rescue that this was. This is this is a rarity for him since becoming the captain of the Baywatch. He doesn't get to get his feet sandy like he used to. <laughs> and he's like, you know what, Mitch? It was pretty awesome pulling two screaming middle-aged people out of the water the way we just did. <laughs> Wish I could do it all the time. He does that kind of like 
that power move that a boss can do, which is like, I'm going to work the low job on the totem pole and you're going to still have the medium job on the totem pole. I'm going to work the low job. And while I'm out there, I'm just a lifeguard, man. I think Undercover Boss is the most cynical bullshit show ever made, and I hate it. But this is like yeah. if if Undercover Boss didn't mess with any of the subterfuge and just like... <laughs> yeah, no no fake mustache. They'd just no, actually uh, stick Papa John in one of the, in one of the pizza stores, you know? <laughs> Did Papa John go on that show? I don't know. Would it have surprised oh you God. if he had? He's the worst. What a sicko. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Captain Thorpe is psyched about not only having this idea, but having the power to make it happen. He's like kind of <laughs> talking to himself and Mitch is just like kind of staring bemused at him. He can't stop this train wreck that's about to happen. He can't. He just has to agree to it. Yeah. And uh, and so uh, he does. He assigns Captain Thorpe to a tower, uh, a tower that is going to be manned today by Eddie Kramer and Shiny McLean who are two two rookies and the idea that uh the captain has is like hey this is great i can i can spend time with some of our rookies and you know pass on some of the some of the knowledge of a grizzled veteran like myself people associate baywatch with pamela anderson and rightfully so but those people forget Erica Eleniak was on the show for 50 episodes and was at the height of her power. She was a yeah. huge star. I don't know what to think anymore. I really don't. Erica Eleniak ran in slow motion so that Pamela Anderson could run in slow motion. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if I'm Erica Eleniak, I'm fucking pissed that they hire Pamela Anderson eventually. <laughs> Yeah. Um, another uh, season, couple of season one characters that don't show up uh, in season two are uh, Jill Riley and Craig Pomeroy, Sean Weatherly and Parker Stevenson. I think the Craig character was kind of the proxy for one of the showrunners who was like trying to be a lawyer and a lifeguard at the same time. Oh, really? When his le- legal career started. And the, the storyline with Craig is that he is really having a tough time juggling his busy career as like a white shoe lawyer and also like being a total beach rat. This being the only season one episode I've watched in years and years, like none of that is <laughs> is accessible in this episode. When I saw him on screen, I was like, wow, he could uh, face and body double for Michael Bay. That's basically the <laughs> really only could. hit I got off of him. He and Jill don't have a ton to do in this episode, but what they do do is find... Um, uh, Sylvia and Harv tossing the wreckage of their airplane, which has been pulled into the Baywatch garage, and uh, they're frantically looking for something inside it. And uh, they should not be doing that because the NTSB investigation hasn't been concluded. And so what they're doing could be construed as tampering with evidence, but <laughs> it's really just kind of like laughed off like, hey, you two, get out of here. You're not allowed to do that. One of the reasons that this show was so popular globally was how accessible its stories were. And this is a scene that is emblematic of that because Sylvia and Harv basically turned to camera and described their plan. There is yeah. no mistaking what's happening here, what they're doing. <laughs> There's no mystery to solve in this yeah. or maybe any other episode. If English is not your first language and you're reading subtitles, yeah. this is not going to go past you. Absolutely. There's no subtext. Uh, what these two people have done 
is steal a million dollars from the bank that they worked at. They were planning on flying uh, in this plane to Mexico or flying to LA and then driving to Mexico and getting uh, like the one thing I don't quite get is that they like he's like the plan was always to ditch the briefcase in the ocean. Right. And I guess what he means is they were going to like fly down past the border, ditch the briefcase in the Mexican controlled part of the Pacific Ocean fly back to LA and then drive to Mexico. So that part is a little convoluted, but all you need to know as a viewer is these two people stole a million bucks and are trying to get it back and it sunk with their airplane. These two people seem too stupid to have stolen the million dollars is the problem. Yeah. Like I want to I want the prequel episode to the actual theft of the money. Yeah. I feel like when Kim Manners was directing these two, he was like you can't go too big with how silly you are. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. <laughs> like, like he's always taken off his like his like bucket hat and like swatting at people and stuff. It's great. James Sloyan really uh, really takes over every scene that he's in 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 great fashion. The B story yeah. of this episode is the relationship between Mitch and his ex wife Gail. Mitch uh, arrives at a restaurant where Gail is eating uh, in a Jeep Wrangler that isn't projecting the kind of masculinity that he thinks it is. <laughs> yeah, it's really like, it, I feel like if you had any questions about what kind of guy Mitch is, this this Jeep really answers all of them. <laughs> when, when your vehicle is detailed to the extent that the tire gloss has been put on the treads of the tire... <laughs> you're uh, you're in it for the looks. I I love seeing a Jeep Wrangler with a winch on the front bumper that has obviously never been used. It's great. It's one of the great eras of Jeep Wranglerdom right there. The the wheelbase of those old Wranglers is so short that like all you do is hop. It's it's bouncy <laughs> bouncy 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 wherever you go. They're wildly uncomfortable. Uh, he takes a seat across from his ex-wife, Gail, who is a restaurant consultant. And um, she's complimenting the restaurateur on the food. And we think that maybe it, it tastes good. But then when Mitch t takes a bite, he says, he's like, wow, you actually have a really intense job. I've got some background questions to ask you as someone okay. who's just jumping into the fifth or sixth episode here. I get that she's a consultant, I get that she works for someone named Captain Cluck. <laughs> so this isn't a Captain Cluck franchise that she's eating at, is it? I think that she is uh, about to start a big new chapter in her okay. career. Okay, so with, with the Captain Cluck corporate uh, head office. All right, and which is like a, I guess like a a chicken franchise that is currently based in the Midwest and is planning a big expansion into the Southeast. And she's going to go, like, help make sure that those franchises are up to par or whatever. But uh, this this is like tail end of, of previous chapter of career stuff, I guess. In the previous episodes, are you seeing Gail and Mitch fight? Are you seeing Hobie cry in his room listening to them fighting? Or is a lot of this happening off screen? The, a lot less fighting in previous episodes and a lot more like Hobie's got to go to summer school and... Gail wants Mitch to be the one to tell him because Gail is the one that is always stuck, like giving him the bad news or disciplining him. And mm -hmm. Mitch is like 
like part of the really reason the relationship fell apart is that Mitch is too much of a too much of a beach rat, too much of a free spirit, doesn't ever want to like doesn't ever want to be a bummer. So Hobie thinks that Mitch is the greatest guy in the world. Hobie thinks that every time he gets in trouble, it's because of mom. And that's you tough. Know, Gail is left. Gail's left uh, like doing all of the hard parts of parenting in a way that actually makes Mitch look like kind of a shithead. Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of season one is about him recognizing that and growing mm-hmm. from that recognition. But uh, like early, early on, like there's some things that are very unlikable about Mitch in a way that I think is like respectable from a writing standpoint. Like they, they kind of challenge you to, uh, to find a way into liking him. What I liked about their relationship in this episode is how, like, I feel like they model a healthy breakup yeah. through most of it. And this scene is the beginning of that. Like they are, in my mind, freshly divorced and still able to uh, to tease each other about uh, a difficult time ahead. This difficult time involves the move to Ohio and that Gail is wanting to tape take Hobie with her yeah. due to the circumstances surrounding that. And what's, uh, they very elegantly cut from, how do you want to tell Hobie? Well, I think we should tell Hobie like this. And then they cut mid conversation to the pitch to Hobie and Hobie yeah. is pissed. But junior lifeguard training isn't even over yet. I'll be behind next summer. The move to Ohio is happening a lot sooner than expected. And uh, for once, they're presenting a unified front on breaking bad news to the Hobster. And um, like Gail is right to not want Mitch to be the primary caretaker of Hobie. Hobie is constantly like getting caught in a shipwreck or Mm -hmm. uh, nearly drowned or uh, stranded in a sewer pipe or something like that. Like Hobie is in nearly constant danger on this show. And like, it does not seem to have a lot of adult supervision in his life. He's like, he's always just like at the beach with a surfboard, not being monitored by anybody. So Gail should be like really insistent about the he's coming with me to Ohio thing. I was shocked at how much they put on young Brandon Call's shoulders uh, in in carrying this character weight. We've met a lot of child actors as insufferable child characters in the shows that we re- we've reviewed but i'm gonna say this ben uh hobie buchanan one of the greats yeah. uh, not annoying like seems not like annoying. a pretty cool kid <laughs> surprisingly yeah and and here's the thing like normally a kid this good looking fucking hate good looking kids like this like i yeah. i hated yeah. them when i was this age i i i'm <laughs> envious of them now but uh good looking guy yeah was Brandon Call on Step by Step before this or after this? After. Did you read about uh, him being shot? No. So Brandon Call went on to do like basically the entire run of Step by Step and yeah. uh, and was driving home from Burbank after a shoot and was followed closely by a person who ended up shooting him, like shot at his car six times, hit him twice in both wow. arms. The guy oh ended God. up uh, like being found guilty, like life in prison. Wow. It was a total thing. But Brandon Call like survived and recovered and was fine. But it was like one of those scary incidents where a guy was tailgating him and he tried to elude him. 
and accidentally oh, like man. turned into a cul-de-sac and was shot from car to car in a cul-de-sac. It sounds terrifying, crazy. And then uh, Brandon Call uh, retired from acting not long yeah. after that. His last credit is 1998, which is... Um, you don't age out of a face like that, Ben. <laughs> uh, I think, I think yeah. his retirement is everyone's loss. I agree. I mean, I imagine you're also kind of like set up if you do two hugely successful television shows, though. I mean, this sounds like a wild, wild guess. But, you know, so often there's the story of the child actor ends in tragedy. Yeah. Uh, and this could have ended far worse than it did. You just hope that uh, a Brandon Call is out there happy doing his own thing. After he's uh, given the bad news and announces that he's going to go sleep at Clark's tonight, uh, we cut out to one of the towers where (laughs) Now I know why your parents didn't want you to watch this show, because Hobie has a ton of power in his family. He tells his parents where he's sleeping? (laughs) Yeah. That wasn't a technology that I really discovered until I was like 16 or 17. Your parents don't want you to know that this is possible. We cut out to the tower where uh, the captain is hanging out with Shawnee and Eddie. And uh, the storytelling in this in this sea storyline is uh, is really easy. You just have Captain Thorpe say some some anecdote about his his time as a lifeguard. And then you cut to Eddie and Shawnee rolling their eyes and we get the point. He is boring them to tears. They don't. They hate that he is sitting there watching, and they feel like they have like a, like a monitor, looking over their shoulders. Is Captain Thorpe's old man in the ocean routine something that has occurred in the episodes leading up to this, and this is just a new audience for him, or is this a new quality to Captain Thorpe? Uh, I think that he kind of starts as kind of a, a ball busting boss, like. Mitch comes in, you know, on his first day as a lieutenant wearing flip-flops and gets in trouble for it. Uh-oh. It's a hard shoe, Mitch. Can't like, do that. <laughs> you got you to, gotta, like, comply with the uniform code. Yeah. Uh, but um, I don't know. I There's a character in the pilot named Al Gibson who very much feels like the coach of Baywatch. Like, he's like a really lovable older guy. Coach as in Craig T. Nelson coach or coach as in as in Cheers. Oh, and I see. He was played by Richard Jekyll, who comes back as a salty, older, like, sea dog lifeguard in season two. Uh, but but in in season, in the pilot, he plays this, like, kind of lovable older guy who, like, dies in the line rescuing Hobie from a sinking ship. Wow. <laughs> uh, that character's name is Al Gibson. And I kind of feel like they decided to put some of Al Gibson's spirit into Captain Thorpe in, uh, it, you know, since that character got written off the show. I see. That's the, that's the math going on behind the scenes of these Baywatch scripts. Yeah, but it's like it's not the likable version of wistful older gentleman. It's like it's like come on man, shut up. We're just trying to like do our jobs and be lifeguards here. Somehow some way Sylvia and Harve have rented a rowboat and they are uh, in the ocean above what they think is their about to float suitcase that does yeah. not float. Harve has a device like a you know, it's like built out of parts from Radio Shack, the yeah. big red button on a little black box with one long radio antenna. 
the six foot telescoping antenna that invariably <laughs> yeah. breaks the first time you try to collapse it. Yeah, and uh, he explains when I push this this button red, the CO two cartridge in the in the case will explode. It will make the bag buoyant. It will pop up, and we'll have our money. And Sylvia is extremely skeptical, but uh, Harv is like comedically self assured here and pushes the button, pushes the button again, pushes the button again. Nothing happens. Except Harv is proven right because a couple 50 feet away, that suitcase pops up. One thing I wish that was in the dialogue was the ocean is really big. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This suitcase serves an important purpose throughout the episode as a passage of time device. We see it growing more covered in seagull shit and peckings, <laughs> and it gets sunburned. We re- we return to it, I want to say, four or five more times, just bobbing. Just bobbing around in the surf. And I loved thinking about the art department, like, coming up with, like, all right, we're going to have to make this thing look like it's covered in bird poops. We got to, like, come up with a, you know, a paint treatment that is, like, not water-soluble that will plausibly convey bird poops. I imagine a lot of thought went into its color because if you and I were building this prop, I don't yeah. think yellow would have been our first choice. I would my instinct would have been for contrast. But right. but there's something about the yellow and the bird shit that really works in the ocean. Because yeah. because you want its contrast against the water, not just the bird shit. Yeah, and it kind of evokes like scuba equipment without looking too pro like it doesn't it's not a pelican case or or something similar so it it seems like something a slightly mad inventor slash bank employee slash thief would come up with yeah yeah you know it's like it's that kind of like hard-sided luggage you used to see in the early 90s where it's like it's got wheels at one end but they're like on the wrong side so like you're picking up way too much of the weight when you when you pull it on the wheels for it to actually be useful as a as a piece of wheeled luggage you still occasionally see it from time to time at the baggage claim and i just have so much respect for those road warriors willing to keep using it like hell yeah (laughs) i mean they're never gonna break right they're made out of like completely indestructible materials it's just a bad design yeah i mean they survive air crashes That they're basically the only recoverable item from a commercial aircraft crashing. (laughs) They should have built the Cessna out of the stuff they made the suitcase out of. I know. Uh, Not nearly as strong as the suitcase uh, is Mitch and Gail's ability to hold it together as they (laughs) pack up their shit ahead of her move. Things are getting pretty wistful. They're doing that thing that journey through time that you do when you pack up your shit. They're looking at old pictures and uh, yeah. and old mementos of happier days. And then Mitch uh, produces the ugliest sweater ever depicted on television and <laughs> holds it up to the camera. Hey, look, your sweater. <sighs> this thing should be in the, in the Smithsonian. I've never seen anything like it. It's thick enough to use this insulation for a house, the R value of this sweater is like a 12. (laughs) This season on Mitch House Rehab, we're down in the Venice Canals updating Mitch's house for the modern era. One thing about this old construction is that 
none of the walls have proper insulation, so we found this old sweater that <laughs> has a very high R value, and we are layering it into the wall base <laughs> behind our new layer of sheetrock. Luckily, Mitch avoided the horrible error of buying a garment for his wife that's either too large or too small. No one would ever believe that Gail Buchanan is a triple XL, a laughable <laughs> guess at her size, giving him plausible deniability about not knowing her true dress size. Bitch, what were you thinking? What woman wants to wear a bright red sweater with a huge fish on it? It's a moment, and it's a moment that foreshadows what's to come. Like, I expected this hour of Baywatch to be like cotton candy, Nothing mm-hmm. heavy, but there's like real pathos starting to happen between Gail and Mitch that yeah. ends up surprising me down the line. They are grieving this relationship. Gail drops Mitch's lifeguard mug and is brought to tears by it. She's thinking about the good times. She's thinking about all of the mornings that they spent together as a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hugs her to comfort her and... Uh, one thing kind of leads to another here, and uh, they start they start smooching, and it's it's the fade out that un- unmistakably indicates that they're going to go bone down. Yeah, they they cut to the Wrangler outside. <laughs> <laughs> this that, jeep's a rocket. That's how you know. Uh, that's how you know it's going down inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, those Wrangler tires aren't the only thing slathered in armor all. <laughs> this. They're not the only things that's especially knobby at the moment. For someone just jumping into the first season, uh, they still did a good job of self-containing their relationship in a way that was understandable to me. I mean, I will admit, I was like, I thought they were getting divorced and she's moving away. What is this? That's the point, Adam. Like, that's why this is so strange. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's totally that era of television where... Like they are not doing a last time on and and they write to that point. Like yeah. they are they are not assuming you've seen the previous episode and they are not assuming you're sticking around for the next episode. Right. There's a uh, there's a very fun quality to this episode and what I'm gonna imagine are the rest of the episodes in this and subsequent seasons. The cars of Baywatch yeah. are so fun to spot because the next morning uh, Hobie is biking home from the sleepover he told his parents he was going to have which again <laughs> <laughs> yeah nobody nobody called Clark's parents to see if Hobie was there yeah, and like doing no. okay no uh, no like packing up your toothbrush no uh, no spare change of underpants or anything like that he uh, he drops his bike outside behind a late 80s eagle talon which is like a car that <laughs> no one has seen since 1989 really <laughs> and has another talk with his mom that emphasizes how much power he has in his family he's telling them what he wants and they're taking him seriously yeah he's kind of done the math here he just finished summer school. He's got a few weeks of uh, of summer vacation, including his junior lifeguards uh, activities before the move to Ohio. Suddenly that's all been snatched away and he's got four days to pack all of that fun into. And that's what he intends to do. Like by hook or by crook, I'm going to have all the fun I can in the next four days. 
he really goes through the emotional bends here because like when he walks in, his parents have clearly had living room sex because <laughs> he's been at a friend's house for a sleepover. Mitch suggests smoothies. Gail shoots down that idea. And all of a sudden it's back to one. Like one yeah. being we're still getting divorced. We're still moving to Ohio. It seems incredibly difficult for Hobie to process this this back and forth that's happening. He's like, I thought it smelled like sex in here. What? That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. You and Dad started to get back together again. Hobie and Mitch are on the same page on that, right? Like, yeah. Like Mitch, Mitch is like, cool. So, uh, like smoothies and and hangs and it and- smells like Clark's parents' room in here, <laughs> which to me indicates a a healthy functioning uh, sex life between the parents. Why don't you keep it together? Yeah, that's uh, that's how I, a child, process these things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gail. She is really savage when she shuts down the smoothie idea. Yeah. Can't let Captain Cluck down. No, we can't do that. And Craig, uh, back at the at the station, is is just as blunt with Mitch. Mitch is, is back at, at Baywatch HQ in uniform, and uh, Craig, the lawyer lifeguard, is like, Saying like, listen, dude, you are super divorced. Nothing is going to change that. No matter how much wishful thinking you do, Gail is not going to stop moving to Ohio and taking your son away from you. Is Craig the best friend character to Mitch on this show? Or is he just the person that Mitch happened to confide in on this show? Or is Mitch a total open book to everyone he works with and he's bringing his personal <laughs> life into work every goddamn day with every coworker he's got? No, uh, Craig and Mitch go way back and then there's a third friend who is an ex-Navy SEAL that's introduced about halfway into season one and they, like the three of them are like the white dudes with the same haircut that are best buddies and getting into capers with each other all the time. I don't know if... This is something that showed up in the in the standard definition version of this show, but I love Craig Pomeroy's raccoon eyes of uh, of a permanent sunburn on his face. <laughs> it's There's great. There's some incredibly strong sunburn ver- verisimilitude in this show. <laughs> yeah, I love that about him. But this is not the last time we're going to see people crying this episode. No. And I was blown away at the performance that David Hasselhoff gives in this episode. He's really going all the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this is a, this is a real prestige play for him, I think, because he uh, started his career on like daytime soap operas and then did Knight Rider. But he's like the executive producer of Baywatch. Like it is a show built around him and he is making, you know, like this is also season one. He is like making the case for this show every like he brings his a game every single episode i really admire it and uh more than that i really admire david hasselhoff's range fucking quality work here he was a huge star for a reason we smash cut to harv and sylvia walking out of the water in like scuba equipment right that like there was some like offhand reference, like good thing we took those scuba lessons, and now they're like walking out of the water, like damn it, we didn't find the case underwater. Yeah, we did a an exhaustive survey of the airplane wreckage that we left on the bottom of the ocean and could not find our our briefcase full of money. It should have been easy to find that tiny object on the ocean floor. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, if anyone has ever 
had their sunglasses fall off of them while they're walking in the ocean, even in a <laughs> foot of water. Those yeah. babies are fucking gone. I don't know how yeah. it happens, but they're gone. I actually found them one time, but it took me like two hours of like really systematically like shuffling with my feet. Yeah. Inch by inch. And then I f- eventually, you know, like my toes found them like one inch under the sand. I mean, this is the kind of desperation you probably do when the sword of Damocles is hanging over you like this. They like the upside, one million dollars villa in Mexico, Latin lover. The downside today is Monday. Their boss has presumably not been aware that he got robbed for a million bucks over the weekend and is showing up to the bank and opening the vault and discovering the crime today. So they want to get out of town. The The downside is really bad for them. So they are like, you know, resorting to increasingly desperate measures and going at going at each other's throats even more <laughs> like like Harv found a bottle cap and thinks it's a gold doubloon. <laughs> it's a real stressor for their relationship. A lot of wishful thinking going on in this episode. You know, we could get some saddlebags and make it an overnighter. In the next scene, we're back in the uh, in the guard tower with Captain Thorpe and Shawnee and uh, and yeah. Eddie. And uh, after a brief interlude of Captain Thorpe body shaming a number of people situated around the tower, we get our first <laughs> music video, our first of two this episode, yeah. where Captain Thorpe, Mr. Miyagi, Shawnee, and Eddie into taking better care of the tower. There's a visual language in Baywatch. Pretty much every episode, you get two slow motion montages and that they clearly didn't intend to be slow motion because of the yeah. uh, frame judder. <laughs> yeah, like less in the first season and more in the second season, like the effects on those start to get real video toastery in a, in a way that is like so fun to watch as, as a as a video professional. Like, oh, they put the posterize effect on this shot, but not this shot. <laughs> Why? It's funny how incorrect slow motion frame rate on the beach was stolen by Spielberg in Saving Private Ryan as an intentional quality to the shutter speed that's used yeah. in real time. Like, it, it's weird. Like, that, that was the very first thing I thought of when this music video opened was Saving Private Ryan because of that, <laughs> that quality to it. I remember in like the, you know, the mid 2000s hearing that like if a band got their song on a primetime soap opera like the OC or whatever, it could be like a really big deal for them, like yeah. a game changing amount of money that they would get. With that show specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered about if that was something that Baywatch kind of invented because they, like they do this every episode. There's like a long two or three minute montage with a with a song with a singer like it's not it's not needle drop it doesn't seem to be music that's composed specifically for the episode it's like this other thing and uh these are songs i don't really recognize but i i wonder if it like got uh to be a bigger and bigger deal over the course of baywatch to have your song featured in one of these one of the great challenges in shows of this era was the rights holding of that music and you yeah. see it all the time like Dawson's Creek is a is a great example of that like the the episodes that featured a band's song that then became very popular but then when you watch reruns of those episodes those songs have been exhumed and replaced with stock music right yeah or like the state when they issued the 
old episodes on DVD, they had to completely change all the music because it was an MTV show. And so they had access to all of the biggest rock hits of the time. I read on the Baywatch site that part of the remaster process included the insertion of contemporary music from up and coming bands. So I'm interested if, like, I know you're in the middle of a rewatch of this series. I'm interested to know if whether or not you notice, you know, a modern sounding band in a show from the late 80s, early 90s. And if there's any, like, incongruency in in how that sounds and looks. Yeah, so far I have not noticed that. But, I mean, like, I feel like it would really stand out because the... You know, the ambient music that that the show uses to set emotional tone and stuff is so synthesizery mm-hmm. in this show. Like, it's, it is really in a specific era where, like, you can just picture the one guy with, like, six keyboards in a studio somewhere. Yeah. Like, it, it is not what Star Trek Discovery does where they get an entire orchestra together to orchestrate every moment of every episode. It's like... Seinfeld music theme guy. Have you ever watched that uh, that video of the guy like live playing the the opening theme of Seinfeld to one of Jerry's stand up bits? What? And I created this library of weird noises that you can make with your tongues, and they seem to play along well with his voice. Then I used the bass as the primary melody of sorts for Seinfeld. <laughs> That's not a piece of tape. Like he played that song live to Jerry stand up for every single episode that opens with stand up so that the music interplays with the the sets setups and punchlines. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. I kind of feel like something similar is happening here. Like you don't hear like music cues get reused so much as you hear like a a similar suite of synthesizer sounds get reused, mm-hmm. but it's like a little bit different each time. And wow. And it and it feels like this era, you know. Wow. I don't know for how many episodes Captain Thorpe gets to be the B story. But this <laughs> montage to me as an actor, I have to believe most of this makes your death real at your funeral. It's so fun. <laughs> it's like all of it is such a highlight. Yeah. I think a couple of the shots from this montage are in the opening credits too. Like, yeah. like when Monty Markham's credit comes up, like that that shot that like pans up his entire body and he takes the big like satisfied breath of sea air. So great. <laughs> it's so great. He uh he threads that needle of he could so easily be an asshole, but he's so harmless in yeah, this episode right. that that he's not hateable. You understand why Shawnee and Eddie hate being staffed with him but you don't hate him and you completely believe that shawnee and eddie don't hate captain thorpe they're just mildly annoyed by him so what do you do when you're breaking up you go out get some beers with your bros and that's what mitch does with craig and um garner uh garner i don't think we've met yet in this episode but he is a uh is an LAPD cop who is uh, specifically detailed to the beach, uh, which is, um, you know, a cab, but Garner gets a pass. He's cool. <laughs> he kind of has like an interesting relationship with the show because he's like in the credits sometimes, but not others. Like, like he gets like 
shine in the opening credits at on some episodes, but not hmm. every episode. And I don't understand why. Like it must have been like a weird contract thing. But he's like he's a he's a going concern uh, into season two. Yeah, I like him, and this is a good scene for him. It's a very Mi- funny scene. Mitch is there to <laughs> tell them that he fucked around and fell in love with his ex-wife. Uh, yeah. And basically tells them about the scene that happened before this one, which is uh, like he thought that by having sex with his ex-wife, uh, it would be good enough for her to stay. Yeah, I, I thought that if I pulled out the steel, she would remember <laughs> why she fell in love in the first place. Garner is there to say, no, man, like this could be a new start for you. This is great. Like, like embrace the opportunity here while at the same time also confiding just how not over his ex he is during yeah. the scene and uh, garner's ex is named cecilia marie and he says the full name every time he says it yeah. and i just wondered like from a scripting standpoint like cecilia marie must have been somebody's ex that was on the writing staff yeah it is a drinking game of a name for sure <laughs> hey maybe eddie could go I bet he hasn't seen the Sierras up close. The thing about Craig's face in this scene is that I know we've all been with a person who we thought got sunburned during the day, but you don't really notice until night. <laughs> and his face sunburn really blooms under under the uh, the dim light of this bar that they're at, pounding beers. Mitch is looking pretty red as yeah. well. And I sort of... I think that maybe the HD remaster, they just bump the saturation a little bit to make it look richer. Mm -hmm. All that's doing is exposing how sunburned these dudes are. (laughs) If you've never watched Baywatch before and all you knew was what your parents thought about it, you you might assume that it was nothing but plunging one-piece neckline bathing suits, giant tits, and like David Hasselhoff rolling around in the sand but i'm here to say based on this scene and a few others this episode like the the type of masculinity that is on display in this ep is not the kind that one would have assumed would be stereotypically in baywatch david hasselhoff as mitch is like uh is vulnerable and confiding his pain with his friends in a way that feels real and sad and healthy and i was surprised by it they're they're talking about like actual love that is based on respect and like these these dudes are romantics and not and, and not sleaze bags it makes me wonder like if subsequent episodes with with a billy a story is going to be more <laughs> more fuckhound than middle-aged Mitch, you know, thinking wistfully about his ex-wife. I wonder if it's a, it's an age component thing, but for now with this sample size, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the show's ability to, to be the way that it is. Your parents were wrong, Ben. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I would say that like, there are like things about this show that have not aged all that well. And occasionally that the like depictions of masculine and feminine, tropes are among those things Mm -hmm. but overall it's like way less toxic than you would imagine right (laughs) they should put that on the box you should uh you should do a rewatch show with your parents that's what the show should be you watch (laughs) Baywatch with them oh man 
the amount of extremely strained puns that would my, my dad would do if he was on a podcast is almost unthinkable. You've got me as a subscriber. <laughs> Day one. Hobie is uh, packing up with his mom and they're having kind of a heart to heart. Another thing that uh, a show that is sort of pitched as a sleazy porno show you wouldn't imagine would have. But um, yeah, like he's he's talking about feeling a lot of resistance to moving to Ohio, but also like, hey, like you're my mom. I don't want to right. not live with you. Like, I love you. I want us all to live together as a family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a really sweet scene. It's like, it, it's, it felt really plausible that this kid would be like raging around and not really in touch with what exactly is upsetting him about the situation and then finally find a way to kind of articulate it in a moment like this. I love that his difficulty isn't just a single thing. The reality of the situation is more complex than that. And it's what makes his story satisfying and his performance not cheesy and bad. He's got a lot of concerns and and he's being pulled in a couple of different directions. He's being pulled in a couple of different directions. And the thing that's hard for him is exactly the thing that's making it hard for Mitch and Gail to have a non-messy breakup that they are like that they are trying so hard to have. I don't understand, though, within the universe of the show, like (laughs) what is happening to this house? Because Hobie is like. I'll I'll take this, but I'm leaving my posters on the wall and I'm leaving my swim trunks behind. Are they? Is Gail not selling the house? Is is Mitch taking the house then? I, oh no, that's that's Mitch's house. I don't think Gail lives there. Um, but and also, is Gail moving by herself? Because there is a giant moving truck outside, and I think the show <laughs> wants us to believe that she's packed and moved everything into that truck alone. You would hope that Captain Cluck would uh, would finance some of that, some of those costs. Yeah, but also do the proper withholding on uh, on her wages. You know, given the fact that the, those moving costs will be counted as income. Right. Yeah. Bummer. I've always wanted to know the history on flotation devices. One thing I wanted to ask you, because you know a lot more about um, this type of music than I think I do, uh, is uh, Hopi has a Europe poster uh-huh. on his wall. Yeah. I, like, what does that convey to you about Hobie? Uh, that he likes the final countdown. I mean, that's that's basically <laughs> the only thing I know about Europe is that song, and I think it's probably true for most people. But yeah, it also seems like a. I mean, Europe seems like a little old for Hobie, you know. But yet, the final countdown is a is a track that. That spans all generations. Everyone likes that yeah, song. I mean, it's a it's a smash hit. Yeah. It's it's a it's a total bop. But I was like, I don't know, like, I guess that it, it kind of fits. Like, it's it's not quite an edgy band that a that a like seventeen year old would have on on their wall. But he's like thirteen, so he just likes like a big radio smash hit. You know what? That's a great point. Like when you put the Europe poster on your wall, it almost anonymizes a child's musical interests in 1989 in a, in the way that a poster of The Cure would be like a very specific interest <laughs> right. that unintentionally tells you way more about Hobie than, than <laughs> yeah. is probably true. Like a distracting right. amount of knowledge is to be gained yeah. by a, a Cure poster in that context. <laughs> 
Why did the production designer put all those NWA posters yeah. in Hobie's room? <laughs> it's weird to see uh, an NWA poster next to a Pet Shop Boys poster. <laughs> Maybe the horniest moment in the show is this next scene where uh, Eddie is trying to help a lady uh, with the zipper on on the front of her bathing suit that's gotten caught in her hair. Yeah. He's got his hands right in the cleavage in a way that is uh, pretty racy for network television. I don't understand. I mean, Captain Thorpe sees this, sees this from the tower, runs up and runs interference, and then scolds <laughs> Eddie hard about falling for a for this as a con in some way. What's the con? It looks like a pickup that that this lady is doing to to Eddie. Even rookies know better than to try the Rapunzel scam with me. Looks like we're going to be sharing a tower longer than I expected. That'll teach you to go off on a patrol and leave me with Captain Windbag all day. I couldn't tell if he was accusing Eddie of conning the lady or of her. I guess it would have to be her conning him. Oh, yeah. I got my hair cut. In the, and Shawnee is also like really pissed about it. But, you know, you get the sense that that's more because Shawnee was a little bit jealous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Shawnee, you got nothing to be jealous of. <laughs> Sha- uh, Shawnee's like an LA 20. Erica Leniak and Billy Warlock were uh, engaged to be married at one point in real life. Wow. You spend enough time on the same guard tower. I know. You're going to get close. Unbelievable. Jeez. Really punching above his weight class. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, Billy Warlock's no slouch in the looks department either. I mean, this is a good looking show. Basically, top to bottom. Even Monty Markham is bringing the uh, the the older man, you know, carved in a log, good looks yeah. to the thing. Like uh, <laughs> he doesn't stand out as a a bad looking guy. Yeah, boy, that's what you don't want on a show like this, right? Like no, like Craig Pomeroy gets the closest of anyone to seeming bad looking, but like he is he is like unconventionally handsome at worst. That's part of what makes Harv and Sylvia stand out almost cartoonishly is just how regular they look compared to (laughs) the knockout that is every title character on the show. (laughs) Yeah. This is uh, this is when we cut. We've been cutting back to the the briefcase over and over, seeing it crust up with more and more bird shit, get get more and more damaged looking. But the final indignity that is visited on this on this briefcase is getting crashed into by a a speedboat. The pilot of which does not seem to notice that he has hit a briefcase full of cash. And there is a really fun uh, explosion of money uh, that is just it's like cut to briefcase, cut to explosion of money, cut away. I don't know how much time you spent on a, on a speedboat or any boat going fast on a body of water, but uh, this this seems like a boat crippling speed to hit anything at, yeah. including a very strong piece of luggage. Like the boat should explode instead of the suitcase, <laughs> but instead yeah. it's like a pinata of cash. It's it's a shocking moment, and maybe more shocking is that it's cut to Mitch's office. Yeah, it's like not. Like the the after effects of this are not seen for a little while, and it's it's Mitch and Hobie talking about, 
you know, Hobie's starting to like develop some excitement about Ohio. He's like started to like read a little bit about it. <laughs> he says something very funny about like, hey, uh, like, you know, we've got beaches and lifeguarding here in California, but in Ohio, they have rivers that catch on fire. <laughs> yeah. Hobie's book report about Ohio reveals a lot about the dangerous waterways there. <laughs> Not going to need those swim trunks after all. <laughs> You definitely don't want to wear a synthetic trunk no. in Ohio because uh, that's just frozen gasoline you're wearing around your belly. Yeah. Uh, Hobie's acceptance of his circumstances uh, conclude with a a sincere I love you to his father on the way out the door. And we have cut back to the beach and a girl making a sandcastle topped with a $100 bill. And then... Like this is a quality of the of this scene and the scenes to come is like the stillness in the foreground and the frenetic action of the background because we see the sandcastle and then we see, you know, Hobie and his pal Jenny having a conversation on the beach and shit is just a riot around them as they're having this conversation. They don't they don't like pick up on it initially. Like we cut to a couple of wide shots where like some people are sprinting down to the waterline mm-hmm. and then we cut to Hobie and Jenny walking and it's like a really long walk and talk where Jenny's like, why do you have this weird Ohio book? Like, why do you have a stack of books on Ohio? Right. And Hobie is breaking the news to his friend that uh, he's actually going to be moving there. And won't see her until next summer. What a drag. Tell me about it. And they're kind of like slowly becoming aware that something like really mental is happening all around them. And uh, and and that awareness also reaches the guard tower around the same point where Eddie and Shawnee and Captain Thorpe see that uh, a riptide is starting to pull people out into into the bay. Uh, who have gone down to the waterline to collect the huge amounts of cash that are coming in on the surf. There's a lot of fun background acting here having to do with getting that wet money and where you put the wet money when you're in the ocean already. Kind of feel like they started with the idea of girls stuffing wads of cash into their bikini tops and wrote the episode outward from that moment. My favorite person in the water in this scene is the guy with the bills water taped to the back of his neck. <laughs> yeah. Does he not know that they're there or is that where he's put them? No, he, he, they show him putting one. <laughs> I don't understand that at all. I mean, it's 1989. Your swim shorts have a mesh inside. That's where you yeah. stick the cash. That's where you put the cash. Maybe the most 1989 shot in the episode is Harv and Sylvia in their scuba equipment trudging up the beach, carrying their flippers, and a guy with like a two and a half foot long mullet, yeah, like falling down in the foreground in front of them with an armful of wadded up money. Like hugging it like a teddy bear. <laughs> that guy did the best. I mean, most people you saw out in the ocean got five or six hundred bucks, but this guy, this guy easily has like, has, has like yeah. <laughs> this this guy's buying a nineteen ninety Eagle Talon. New. Yeah. He's he's headed right to the Venice canals and uh, yeah. and plunking down cash for a new whip. Yeah, uh, a new whip to perfectly match his haircut. The uh, the get that wet money music video ends with. The rescue beginning, and uh, it isn't long before Captain Thorpe succumbs to a cramp, and no one tells him to just put his his feet down 
Everyone here can touch the bottom. <laughs> yeah. This is definitely something that uh, that this show struggles with is like, how do you present a water yeah. rescue as a genuinely dangerous situation and also shoot it in a safe way? And the answer they come up with time after time is you shoot it right in that like, you know, one and a half to two feet of surf where if somebody like lays down, they can go under the water, but they are like laying on the bottom of the water and their nose is an inch from the surface. Right. And also the water is really frothy, so it looks more violent than it probably is. You just tilt the camera down. And this scene is like is a pretty messy example of a Baywatch rescue scene because like there are people drowning in the foreground that are like further up the up the beach and people in the background that are standing picking up money still who are like only like knee deep in water <laughs> and you're like right. all right I, like is this guy drowning or are those guy- people knee deep in water because it can't be both some real storyline switcheroo happens here because when Captain Thorpe gets crampy you know Eddie Eddie takes his his red plastic bobber and goes and continues the rescue. But we don't stay with Eddie and his rescue. Instead, we're back with Hobie and and Jenny. Jenny played by Jandy Swanson from the Dolphin Polishing episode yeah. uh, of Kim Manor's direction. Uh, very familiar to each other, those two are. Yeah. And, uh, and it's Hobie who does the beginning to end rescue. He spots someone struggling out in the water, is unable to tell them to uh, stick their feet down, goes and rescues this girl, and then does a full sequence CPR scene. And the rescue's successful. Like the girl coughs out the water. Nice job, kids. It's an age appropriate rescue. Hobie and Jenny have clearly, like, been together in the junior lifeguard training so they're like helping each other remember Mm -hmm. the like sequence of breath and counting yeah and like what you do when you don't hear breathing and and stuff and uh it's very successful they save the girl a uh like one of the yellow lifeguard pickups pulls up and uh this poor extra playing a lifeguard like comes and takes over the takes over the rescue scene and they cut away before we got a line from him, so like they clearly didn't pay him yeah. a a U five day rate. They just looped in somebody going like, "Good job, kids." <laughs> nice job, kids. We stay with Jenny and Hobie in the next scene because we're at Baywatch base or Base Watch mm-hmm. when they arrive, and uh, <laughs> and Shawnee is the first to see them, and she is is really hang dogging it for them in a in a pretty bad way she thinks she tells them that they are in big big trouble and uh it's time to face the music so so when uh jenny and hobie get to the top of the stairs the the assembled baywatch team is up there and it's there that mitch breaks the bad news that uh the little girl that hobie gave cpr to uh has suffered permanent brain damage and will never recover yeah he broke a couple of her ribs and yeah, the and, compressions uh, were too compressions strong, too. Hobie. Yeah, you're not supposed to put all of your weight into the ribs. And this is where the show kind of turns, and it becomes you know like it it becomes more of a courtroom procedural about like right. the trial and prosecution of Hobie Buchanan. Who I was shocked is like the suggestion is that he's tried as an adult. Yeah, I mean this is this is that like tough on crime era in California, right? You know, I mean Jenny Drake is not tried, but like 
it's not like she gets away scot-free. Her drug problem begins pretty much now. Yeah, and, the, and you know, the press just takes that and runs with it for all it's worth. Yeah. Her name is really dragged through the mud. It's like she'll never get a respectable job after something like this. Gail is safely in Ohio, uh, which is probably good for her not having to yeah. deal with the day-to-day of this. Well, if you notice, like every time somebody name checks her, she's dropped her, you know, she's gone back to her maiden name. Like she doesn't even want to be associated with the name Buchanan anymore. No shortage of tears for Mitch Buchanan in the series up until now. Uh, But when he has to sell the Wrangler to pay for that defense attorney, I mean, he he really loses it. He loses it. Craig loses it because Craig thought he was up for the gig. Yeah. Like he thought that they were tight and that Mitch would would hire him. And yeah. And when Mitch goes, he says something about like, I need somebody that actually knows their way around a a criminal trial. It's very hurtful. <laughs> really drives a wedge in their relationship. <laughs> <laughs> no, none of that happens, Adam. That's that's the big switcheroo. Yeah. We we did a switcheroo like the show did. Jenny and uh, Jenny and Hobie get get uh, official commendations. Yeah, they're heroes. They saved that girl's life. So happy for them. I mean, yeah. these junior lifeguards did a great thing. Gail can only watch from outside <laughs> the window. <laughs> Aren't they on the second story? How is she up there? I think there's like a there's like a big deck where sometimes they go out and like look at the beach with binoculars. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So I think she's up on that deck. Okay. Yeah. The um, <laughs> it's a funny like it kind of reminds me of like the J.J. Uh, Abrams 2009 Star Trek film where like part of the reason Kirk gets hired into Starfleet is like we need people that like break rules mm-hmm. and like and like you know do the hard thing in the moment. Yeah. And like. Like Hobie and Jenny like could very well have uh, done more harm than good in this situation, but because because they rescued the girl, it's it's a it's a big slap on the back. Yeah, it's a fun moment. Like you really feel it when when Johnny tells them that they're in shitloads of trouble, and the relief is like so massive. It's great. It's a great moment. It's fucking great. It's so good. When I was in junior lifeguards, I screwed up plenty, but I never got what you're about to get. Harv and uh, Sylvia have entered Base Watch. I guess the beachgoers who got all this money were then asked to turn it into the lifeguards, and the lifeguards are like counting out wet bills. And yeah, Harv and Sylvia are like, well, they don't know that we stole the money. Why don't we just ask for it? We say like it came from our plane that we crashed. And Sylvia thinks that this is like a completely asinine idea, but Harv is kind of insisting on it. And uh, are you turning in the money, Ben, if you've stuffed your your mesh swim trunks <laughs> with three thousand dollars in in wet hundos? Honestly, Adam, I think I would. Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Here's what I'll say: I would turn in most of it (laughs) but i am definitely keeping something for my trouble (laughs) like like one of the hundos is is like wallpapered to my taint right uh they catch wind that um word has reached base watch of their crime and attempt to sneak out they uh they're headed for one exit when uh, garner and a couple of other beach cops are uh, coming in that way, so they quickly divert to running down the stairs, and 
are almost home free when Eddie and Captain Thorpe come in uh, off uh, out of the locker room talking about stuff. And uh, this is a scene where Captain Thorpe kind of lays it on Eddie. Uh, Eddie did did not include Captain Thorpe's Charlie horse in his write up of uh, of what happened on the beach that day. They, they keep meticulous records of their beach rescues and Captain Thorpe takes great umbrage with the fact that Eddie has omitted anything about Thorpe's uh, inability to help in the rescue. Hobie isn't the only one getting the bends this episode. I got the bends when Captain Thorpe goes from being pissed at Eddie for covering for him to soliciting him as his own personal trainer. (laughs) Like, which is it, Captain? Like, pick a lane. Maybe you could help me uh, get into shape. And what's going on here seems pretty pervy. Yeah, it's really intense. It's it's uh, it's really gaslighting Eddie. Uh, we don't have a ton of time to chew on this though, because uh, two uh, two people dressed in lifeguard outfits attempt to slink out of another locker room and out the door, and Thorpe notices them and kind of uh, kind of insists that they join them in the weight room. And uh, this is this is Harvin Sylvia. They've attempted to uh, disguise themselves and sneak out, and uh, Captain Thorpe's onto them. Come on! I got the sense that the scene before, where Captain Thorpe is body shaming people all around his guard tower, is the moment that set up the the reality of this scene. Because Sylvia and Harv are like disguised and far away, but Captain Thorpe spots them immediately, knows exactly who they are, yeah. and and his plan goes into motion right away. Eagle-eyed Captain Thorpe, very impressive here. Impressive. His plan is kind of insane. Which is nearly kill Sylvia and Harv <laughs> under these weights. Yeah, put them on the bench press benches and put extremely heavy weights on them. The second and third fractured rib cages of the show, along with the kid that, that Hobie and Jenny save. <laughs> uh, but they don't have to have these things on them long because uh, the cops show up and uh, and arrest them. They're bickering on their way out the door just as much as they were when we first met them. Yeah, they're going to be uh, bickering in prison, <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> Hobie has made the front page of the newspaper uh, below the fold, though. So, like, don't get too crazy, Hobie. Yeah, not world-changing news, just uh, noteworthy. Yeah. Yeah, the Los Angeles Sentinel has a uh, has a big article about him. And uh, Hobie is wondering if word of his fame will reach Ohio before he has to move there. <laughs> and uh, that's when mom comes in and uh, breaks another pretty momentous piece of news. I think it's better if you stay with your dad. Yeah, I mean, what she says is that Captain Cluck has ordered her around for an entire year. Like, this is going to be a travel job primarily, so. Yeah, she's moving to Ohio, but she's going to be all over the Midwest, traveling all the time, and the... She's never going to move out of those boxes, Ben. She won't, and paradoxically, as if this were even possible, she would be able to provide even less childcare than Mitch Buchanan is. (laughs) 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 <laughs> now look so. <laughs> I was I was paying very close attention throughout this episode clearly yes but did did Gail make up this story Gail made up the story right she isn't actually traveling she thinks Hobie would be better off staying in on the beach with Mitch 
I was confused by this. I thought she made it up. I think she's saying that like the circumstances of her job are legitimately not as stable as she had imagined they would be. And she is she's going to be traveling enough that it will be really hard for her to look after Hobie. I think you could read this scene as her making it up, though. Because when because oh, really when Gail and Mitch have their own conversation about it, it seems as though Mitch is like, are you sure this is what you want to do? And Gail's like, I had to. Something that Gail says here made it seem as though she was making it up. She's like, I see how happy he is with you. I just couldn't do it, Mitch. I gotta go. Wait, wait. I, I don't know. That's how I read it. I I think that's a really valid interpretation and I had not considered it. It, if it's true, it makes Gail a very interesting character. Yeah. More interestinger than she has been already, I should say. I'm really, I'm really curious about Captain Cluck. Like, yeah. I, I want to try it. When are the Doughboys going to review Captain Cluck? Come on. Yeah, Captain Cluck sounds good. Captain Cluck pop up. Let's, let's fucking do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in this scene, Mitch gives Gail. Uh, an aforementioned duck statue and tells her not to smell the beak. <laughs> and Hobie gives Gail a book about Ohio trivia, which, mm-hmm. I mean, how did he know? I mean, I guess maybe it's his book on Ohio, on Ohio trivia and the, the burning rivers that you can find there. Yeah, I mean, when he was walking on the beach with Jenny, he had a big stack of those right. Ohio books. So, I mean, like he is rich in books on Ohio. He's not going to miss one of them. He can burn those no problem. Like clearly the Buchanans have no problem burning belongings that other family members <laughs> prize. Uh, he's got a big tear on his face when uh, Gail walks out the door and uh, he runs He runs out and catches her at the door to her car and gives her a great big hug. A, a very tearful goodbye. Hobie got a couple of cracks at this to- sort of scene. He, uh, he, I love you, goodbyes, Mitch early on and then he I love you goodbyes uh, his mom at the end here it's a big lift for an actor as young as him and he does a great job with it and the Moog synthesizer uh, plays Gale off the show I mean are we not gonna is that it for Gale Buchanan oh I think we'll see Gale again (laughs) (laughs) yeah tune in to next year's Max Fun Drive episode (laughs) It's going to take us a thousand years to do all of Baywatch. <laughs> One episode There's per year. So many seasons of this show and it's like 25 episodes a season. It's great for like stuff. 11 seasons or something. Did you like this episode of Baywatch, Ben? Oh, I think you know I liked this episode of Baywatch. I, uh, You're kind of the expert. You've seen a lot of episodes recently. How does this? How does this compare? I've watched about two-thirds of the way through season two at this point. So I've wow. watched probably 40 episodes <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm loving it. Like, I, it, it really feels a lot like Star Trek in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think it doesn't have the space socialism that I look for in a television program. Right. Uh, you know, the moralizing is not quite as heavy-handed as Star Trek in a way that I disapprove of, mm-hmm. but... It, it scratches a lot of the same edges as early series TNG, and it also is bad in a lot of the same ways as early series TNG. Like, and in and in so being is not bad in a way that really bothers me. Like, it's 
its badness is actually like kind of fun and enjoyable. And its badness has aged well in a way that other kinds of badness for its time hasn't. Yeah, and exactly. that is, and that's the reason that I I too liked this episode, and I like Baywatch in general. Like, there's something, there's something that translates. Its badness is timeless, <laughs> in a way that is acceptable. It seems like. And while yeah. and while I'm saying that based on this one episode, I'm sure there are some real clunkers and problematic eps in the 700 episodes of Baywatch that they made. Inevitably, uh, I mean, what show can't say that from this time period? I I really enjoyed the experience of watching this episode, and I was just really impressed and surprised by the range of it. I expected yeah. it to be emotionally very confined and very superficial and very dumb, but um, I was frequently surprised at the range that the actors had and that their characters went through and the complexity of their problems being what they were. Uh, I, I thought it was great. Well, Adam, every episode of the Santa Monica Mountains, you and I identify our favorite character from the episode, the one that evokes the beachy spirit of Richard Jekyll's character from the pilot, Al Gibson. <laughs> so I have to ask you, Adam, did you find yourself an Al Gibson? I'm a legend on the beach. It, this may be too on the nose because of what you told me about the Al Gibson character, but Captain Thorpe seems to be the character who's most relishing his circumstances, who's having the most fun. He never gets to do this. And this is the episode <laughs> where he does. And yeah. for as annoying as he is to the rest of the characters, uh, his his joy goes undiminished up until that cramp. And even at, even at the end, like he learns a valuable lesson about aging. He's cramping out in the surf and he has that like moment, uh, like wordless moment with Eddie where it's just like a game recognized game yeah. nod. Yeah. <laughs> I love so that. Funny. And you know, it's, I feel like a contemporary show would lean so hard into the shame of yeah. this and the need to have Captain Thorpe faces come up and it's like hoisted on his own cramp petard. Like, fuck you, Captain Thorpe. You thought you could hang with Eddie and you couldn't do it. And now, like, you need to have your scene at the end where where you, like, pound sand and, and cry to the heavens over your broken body and how you can't do the thing you used to do anymore. It's fairly benign as a consequence goes. Like, he had a bad day out in the ocean. Uh, no one died because of it. Uh, but up until then, he had a, a fun adventure, a fun nostalgic adventure, yeah. going back to his old guard tower. And yeah, like uh, Captain Thorpe, for sure, is is my vote. Uh, what about you? Really great vote. Um, hard to argue with. Um, I think my Al Gibson is going to be Mitch in this episode for a choice that he makes with his bros when he goes to bemoan what a bad deal he's got with Gail leaving, even though they just had sex. Uh, he takes them to the bad restaurant that she was, that she was doing consulting for. Why does he do that? He, he just made a comment about how bad it was. I mean, I guess, I, I don't know if they're eating or just drinking. And I guess if you're just drinking, maybe you feel slightly safer. But the other like corny older show that I'm rewatching right now is Bar Rescue. And I feel like, if the food is bad, I'm mad suspicious of those beer lines now. 
you know what that scene really hit me with was the nostalgia for the type of barware that is the pint glass that is not a pint glass that is instead a very thick mug yeah. that holds a pint of beer yeah that is unusually heavy for its size i feel like that mug is thick and heavy because it's not a full pint like they're yeah. using the thickness to diminish the amount of beer in it and still give you the sense and it's always a feature of the bar that has the the pint versus the like what are the bars like they do the schooner, the pint, and the like the boot or whatever. <laughs> right. This this the little, flagon. The little mug, it's always positioned in that spot in the in the popcorn line at the movie theater. Like no one gets the small because the medium is only fifty cents more or whatever. Like right, that's right. <laughs> that's the quality of this beer. And what I thought about when I saw people drinking them, I was like, really do miss that size of beer because that thing is drank before it gets warm it it goes right down the hatch yeah yeah i mean that's another nice thing about the cold the cold mug is that if they keep that in a fridge yeah uh it's it's a it's keeping your temperature good for a lot longer it's nice yeah just three guys at a bad restaurant enjoying beers <laughs> doesn't that sound nice thinking about how much we love cecilia marie yeah one of us having an extremely bad sunburn. One of us having an extremely bad sunburn, but critically being the one that has a very successful marriage uh, to a beautiful woman that he gets to go home to at the end of this hang. That sounds like a great night. Great night yeah. for Craig Pomeroy. Uh, one other thing about uh, Craig's character is that Eddie is his roommate. Like <laughs> Craig and his wife have like a spare room and they're like, shabby chic that should uh, be the warehouse show. apartment <laughs> i know <laughs> why isn't that the show <laughs> god <laughs> eddie uh, <laughs> you shaved your chest and you left the clippings on the on the bathroom sink again god damn it <laughs> you gotta clean up after yourself can you and shawnee keep it down when you guys come in at 2 a.m yeah that, Very fun. that's big fun uh just as doing this show was big fun ben great suggestion yeah, thanks for doing it with me, and thanks to everyone uh, who tuned in to this first ever episode of Santa Monica Mountains. Um, we uh, we really, really appreciate you supporting our shows, or if you're just a Max Fun listener who clicked this because you were curious uh, for supporting any shows. Um, but uh, yeah, this is a, a very much like what we do on The Greatest Generation, but just a, about a different show, and uh, it was really fun to... Like, I feel like we've done movies and we've done one, like, our one series, but uh, it's very fun to, like, branch out into other areas of this era of television. This was so enjoyable for me that I don't want to rule out doing a Baywatch from time to time and throwing it in the bonus feed. I think uh, this is a fun distraction, a fun bubblegum and cotton candy kind of uh, yeah. show-watching experience. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh... uh no promises there, but uh, but maybe we will. Yeah. And uh, thanks again for supporting. Thanks, everyone. Bye.